This morning I'm beginning a short new series on radical discipleship. I want to encourage you to become a radical follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to touch on that. And my main message today is about love, radical love. God is calling you and me, us together, to be radical lovers of him, radical lovers of others, radical lovers of those who need that love out there in the world. And my key thought is being rooted and grounded in love. You want to know what the sure foundation is? It's love. To know the love of Christ is the foundation of all radical Christian living. Being sold out to his love is the only sure foundation for life and living and the only pathway to the fullness of God. I have, uh, in uh, times gone by, spent a lot of time in a book by the name uh, of, uh, written by David Benner. It's called Sacred Companions, The Gift of Spiritual Friendship. And this is what he says about love. He says, I begin to love God when I know, not simply believe, but when I know God loves me. When the thing about me that I most deeply know is that I am deeply loved by God. I have taken the first step toward a heart of knowing God. I've also taken the first step towards genuinely loving others. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, reads like this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and height, and depth, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I recently read a testimony, the story of a man by David Bennett. There are two Davids, one that I'm quoting from Sacred Companions and David Bennett. His book, A War of Loves, get it in the bookshop. We ordered some copies, we'll order some more in. David is a young man who is a radical follower of Christ. And that's amazing. But all the, so, all the more amazing when you understand his background. At the age of 14, this young Australian teenager living in Sydney, Australia, came out to his parents and his classmates as being gay. His family welcomed him. His family continued to love him. But he, he saw in Christianity the enemy, the enemy to freedom, the enemy to his own sexuality. And he teamed up with the LGBTQI community 
And uh, as a result of the early experiences coming up with Christians and church people, the prejudice, the homophobia, and the hate that was poured out upon him, he became an avid, radical gay activist. But at the age of 19, something happened to him. He had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ. A student friend of his, somebody who had recently been awarded, having made a short film, having won that short film competition, a highly creative and intelligent young woman, a good friend of David, met up regularly with him. She was a believer in Christ. And one day, in a gay bar, a gay cafe, in the gay area of Sydney, they had this conversation. David was pouring out his heart about his dissatisfaction and, and, and his, his hatred towards all of the repression that the Bible and Christians and church community were seeking to impose upon him. And she simply responded by asking him a penetrating question. Now, you could ask all your friends this question tomorrow. It won't necessarily have the same effect uh, because there is always the timing of God. You never know how long she'd been praying for David. But at this time, the moment had come and she leaned across the ca cafe table and said, David, have you ever experienced the love of God? Now, if anybody else had said that, he probably would have slapped them. I don't know. He, he could speak for himself. But because this was a good friend, known to be a believer, who was not angry, judgmental, prejudiced, or homophobic, but just open to receiving people as they are, because it was that person, David paused and he said, Do you know what? I haven't. I didn't even know such a thing was possible. So she said, may I pray for you? And he said, yes. So she reached out, laid a hand on him, and prayed a very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you reveal your love for David? And you know what? It happened. Right there, on the spot, in that cafe, David said that his heart was flooded with a profound sense of God's love. And he knew that as he was, not just a gay man, but a gay man full of hate against the Bible and against Christians, that God loved him exactly where he was, as he was right there on that spot. God loved him. And he also recognized that this love that he experienced then was the love he'd been looking for in all his relationships. He was pursuing something by way of love that he had never been able to find. And that's not just to do with his sexuality. It's to do with the love of God, which is unique and infinitely higher than all forms of love that we'll ever know amongst one another. And the deeper sense of love that we could have for one another is the overflow of the love of God in our hearts and minds.
Now, it would be wonderful to have David come and speak to us one day, but reading his book, he, he describes how life who is totally transformed from that moment. In fact, if I remember correctly, she prayed for him and he began to speak in tongues. This guy was born again, spirit-filled right there on the spot. But then there came the long process. What do I do with my sexuality? What do I do with the way, my way of life? What do I do with my public commitment and my public stance as a, as a radical gay activist? And bit by bit, God led him to the point where he said, David, I want you to give me the whole of your life, including your sexuality. And so David yielded it all to God. And the outcome of that was he heard a clear call from God that his life should be lived purely and 100% for God and that he would be pledged to live a life of pure and holy and glory-filled celibacy for the rest of his life. Now, celibacy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this is given to those who are able to receive it. So don't worry if anybody lays hands on you later on today. But I believe that we need to uh, elevate the call of celibacy much higher than we do in evangelical churches. After all, everybody in the whole, all of you, have been called to be celibate at least at one stage in your life. If you're single, you have a call to be celibate. Amen and amen and amen. But the standard thing for most people is that God will bring people together in marriage, male and female, as he instituted. And that doesn't always work out as it should with people. And there's some people in many ways, you, they should have been married, but it never happened. But still, God is above those things. And there is a level and a depth of God's love where not even our most wildest romantic desires and romantic dreams come anywhere near to the even wilder and even greater dreams that God is dreaming over you to fill your life and overflow your life with such a gift of His love that you have not just enough for yourself, but more than enough for yourself. So much, it's like chocolates at Christmas, you get so many, you just got to give them away and you give God's love away. So I am starting with the foundation of radical Christian living and that is radical love. Now the term radical kind of has a disturbing sound to it today. We think about radical extremists, religious extremists, and the word has come to mean extreme and something that is to be shunned. But when you examine the meaning of the word in its depth in the dictionary, we find that radical people are defined like this. They are those who want to see change in their lives and change around them, but not tiny changes, superficial changes, behavioral external changes. They want to see a thoroughgoing, far-reaching and revolutionary change in their lives and in the lives of those around them and change that sticks. Now, I think in reading those words, I want to make sure I am a radical Christian. The dictionary word is derived from Latin, which is a word meaning root. Uh, something radical is something that goes to the roots of something, to the foundation of something. That's why you have to be rooted and grounded in the knowledge of and experience of God's love. Radical means uh, something that affects the fundamental nature of something. 
something that is far-reaching and thorough. And so I think this is a good word to adopt for us as believers, to go back to the roots, to go back to the original teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, to go back to the Gospels. Some of you listening on audio Bible or, or reading patiently yourself, go back to the Gospels, go back to the beginning and hear the Gospels speak. Hear of the miraculous birth of Jesus. Who is this amazing person that was born, the Messiah? And how he begins to minister, going about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil. The amazing things that he said. And when Jesus spoke, it was either true or untrue. It was either true and and it is true, or it was untrue and he thought it was true, or it was untrue and he knew it was true, knew it was untrue. So there's no alter other alternatives. Either he is mad, bad, or God. If he's mad saying, I'm the son of God, and he wasn't, he's crazy. If he is bad, he's saying, I'm the son of God. I know I'm not the son of God, but I'm just pretending that's bad. But if he is God, when he says, I am the son of God, he knows he is the son of God, and the spirit will show you the true identity of Jesus Christ. It's like going back to the words in red. Now, I have two minds about this. Uh, many Bibles today, including my Bible, all the words of Jesus are written in red. And that's good to highlight them. But, you know, the whole Bible is the word of Jesus. Not just the words in red, but the Old Testament, the New Testament. However, if we're going to go back to the purity, the foundation, the root teaching of Jesus, and, and, and listen to him again and determine to take that at face value and apply those words in a thoroughgoing, consistent, far-reaching way that produces change that sticks. If we do that, we are going to become radical followers of Christ. So the question that that lady asked David in that cafe all those years ago is a good question. And I address it to you and to me, afresh. Have you ever profoundly experienced the love of God? Not just a glimpse of it here and a glimpse of it there, but so profound that that sense of God's love stays with you. We'll cover later on, it's not always about feelings. In fact, I find it's hardly ever about feelings. But we are persuaded and convinced in a way in which we have met with God and ongoing experiences with him and the Holy Spirit, that God loves us and that God, the God who is love, loves as only God can love. And that love is higher than anything else that is found on this planet apart from that which is poured out from above. One of our problems is English. The English language has really only one word for love, and that is it, love. And in the same breath, we can say how much we love coffee and how much we love God, and there's only one word to cover both kinds of loves. But of course, they're very different. The ancient Greeks had eight separate different words for love. And these words were distinctive. So if they used one word, they, you would know they were talking about family love, filial love, the love of children for their parents, love of parents for their children. Another word of love would be friendship kind of love or brotherly love. Another word would be talking about romantic love. Another word talking about sexual love. And all of these loves have a place 
in God's purposes, but it must be the rightful place. And God's blessing can be and will be upon all of these expressions of love if they are surrendered to his ultimate plan and purposes. But there was one word for love in the ancient Greek language, which is carried on into the New Testament for a very special reason. It's the word agape, agape. It is used exclusively in the New Testament, reserved for a particular use, talking about a particular love, a special kind of love. It's the love of God. And that word is used because in the original way it was used, it was used of the highest forms of love amongst humanity, selfless love, sacrificial love, unconditional love. And the Bible shows us that that kind of love, at that kind of level, love in its purest form, in its highest form, in its most fulfilling, most satisfying, and most glorious form is the love of God himself. And therefore, being rooted and grounded in love begins with an understanding, a realization, indeed, a deep experience of God's love that is to continue throughout our Christian life. David Benner says, to know God, we must first think of him, not simply about him. We must learn to become attentive to his presence with us. We must learn to spend time gazing on him, being still before him. Hear ye, O Londoners, hear ye. There is a blessing in stillness before the Lord. Uh, apart from all the busyness of modern, crazy, madding, <coughs> metropolitan life. Being still before him and focused on him. And we must learn to listen to him. These disciplines of loving attention form the basis of the development of a love relationship with God. Jesus is a perfect example, exponent and manifestation of this love. Jesus' love was multidirectional. You can read all of the New Testament, at least all of the Gospels, and see that Jesus won overpowering, life-dominating, controlling passion was his love for the Father. Even before he went to the cross, he said, now the world must see how much the Son loves the Father. So when Jesus died on the cross, it was his passion, his love for the Father, for the Father's purposes. Here I am, Lord, send me. I'm, I'm willing to do your will. And so his love for the Father is matched only by the love of the Father for the Son and the desire of the Father for the Son. The Father loves the Son, the, loves, uh, the, the, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love is so strong between them that He also is the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of love. Love is of God, and anyone who is born of God loves. This is the powerful experience of the love of God. In John's Gospel, there is a recurring phrase. Have you come across it? Every so often, John describes the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you say, who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Who is this special one? Not football manager, but special one 
amongst the 12. Who is this? And of course, when you read closely, you find that John is talking about himself. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine Peter saying, you don't want to put that there, he loves us all. Now, it was not that John was saying, Jesus loves me more than he loves you. No, 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 no. John was so overwhelmed by the love of God, he is called the apostle of God's love. And so much in the gospel of John and in the epistles of John, it's about love. Why? Because John made a decision. He said, I'm not going to define myself by what I think about myself or what others think of me. I'm going to define myself by the way Jesus thinks of me and he loves me. And because he loves me, my identity is I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yes. Put your hand here, try and say it. No, I don't mean together, hand here. Turn person next and say, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> if that sounds egotistical or boastful, you haven't understood it. It means I am defining myself, not by what I think of me, what other thinks of me, but what God thinks of me. And there in John's gospel, he makes this statement. He says, having been in the world and has, having loved his own, he loved them to the, to the very end. And now he says he is going to show them the full extent of his love. What was the fullest extent of his love? They say the devil is in the detail. Uh -uh. Love is in the detail. Nobody had remembered to bring a servant to wash the disciples' feet. In the way we eat, we can hide our feet under the high table. But in those days, there was no high table. There was a low table. And you had to just lie on your side and very, very surely, just in front of your head will be the feet of the disciple sitting next to you. And it was an unpleasant experience in those open-toed sandals when there were cattle in the streets and camels and donkeys. You would tread in something unfortunate going from any A to any B. So Jesus said, as he took off his outer robe, wrapped a towel around himself, took up a basin, and one by one began to wash the bleep off the disciples' feet. Remember who he is. When it came to Peter, everybody was thinking the same thing, but Peter's the only one that he couldn't control his mouth, came right out, oh, you're not going to wash my feet. That's ridiculous. I have to wash your feet. And Jesus said, in other words, be quiet, Peter. You have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus ministered to his disciples. And sometimes it is the lowliest of actions, the humblest of expressions, which reveal love more than anything else. The Father loved the world and gave his Son. Jesus loved the Father, loved us, and loved the world enough to give himself upon the cross. Now, here is the point. 
When we talk about lots of different levels of love, you all know that warm, tender feeling that you might have to your children or to your parents or to a good friend or to a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And you have all these butterflies. It's okay. We'll celebrate butterflies on the 14th of February. And those feelings are very human and they are praiseworthy because we are people living in bodies and we have that emotional response that it's visceral. This is, this is where... This is where the emotions are felt, you know, here, in, in, the, in the belly, here. And, and, and that's, that's great and, that, and that's good. But, you know, if we only follow those tingly feelings, we will end up in very non-tingly feeling type situations. But the love of God is not about feelings first. The love of God is about a commitment, a decision to freely bestow all your goodness, all your blessing, all your attention, even to the point of self-sacrifice in order to bring something good into other people's lives and to benefit them. The Bible talks about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as being the highest expression, the Mount Everest, the pinnacle of all revelation concerning what love is. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins on the cross. It was love that nailed Jesus to the cross. There were no ropes or chains or nails that could keep him there if he didn't want to be there. He surrendered himself through love so that the Roman soldiers would pierce, probably not the palms of his hands. That did happen and they'd have to tie the rest of your body to the cross. But very likely it was the nails pierced between the two bones in the wrist, in the forearm, the radius and the ulna, because those bones would hold you and suspend you. And then you'd be bound there and your feet would be bound and all of that and put in a position of excruciating torture. And uh, doctors tell us that there is a nerve here that is centered here and the nails in his body would be resting on that nerve, sending shock pains like thousands of volts of electricity throughout his whole body. Are you willing to agree with me that when Jesus died on the cross, there was not one good feeling in his body? And yet the cross is the expression of God's love. When Jesus was being crucified in pain and agony, it was pure love, self-sacrificial love. And when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, he didn't feel fluffy, dovey, subjective, kiss Jesus on the cheeks kind of feelings of love. It was a decision. It was manly. It was a decision to say, I am committed to this even though I don't feel like it being rooted and grounded in love. It is knowing 
not just God's general love for the world or even his slightly more specific love to his people, it's also knowing and experiencing his love for me, the Son of God who loved me and poured and gave himself for me. And so this is the radical love of God. And once we receive it, we become radical lovers of God. We love because he first loved us. And when we know we are loved, we can learn to love God and learn to love others because perfect love casts out fear. That's the one block, the major block between us and the love of God. Help the people whom you know who don't yet know Jesus. Help them with it because this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks. Here it is. So you say to them, God loves you. And they say, oh yeah, God loves me. You mean uh, you're judging by you, you negative, judgmental, religious bigot. You think that God should open heaven and fry me alive. And this is what the Bible says. He's this God of wrath and thunder and he's going to chuck me into hell. Do I want to serve a God like that? And you know, sometimes you haven't even said anything about it. And that's how they feel. They've got negative ideas, perhaps. And they've, they just think it's all about fire and brimstone and judgment. They, they know nothing about the love of God. And also they don't understand the word love. So in their vocabulary, love means letting me do what I please. But the moment you talk about anything that infringes on their personal liberty to do whatever they feel like doing at any time they feel like doing it, they say, that's not love. If you love me, you'd let me do whatever I wanted to do. If you love me, you let me rob a bank. If you love me, let me shoot that person. If you love me, let me do anything. That's not love. The Bible says love does no harm to others. And you cannot love somebody while knowingly doing harm to them. And so this idea of free love is an absolute misnomer. It does not exist. Love is the thing that brings us right into not just the liberty of the children of God, but into the righteousness of the kingdom. And even before you start talking, you can just talk about love. If that's all, not anything we should talk about, we should help them understand what love is. Soon they find themselves fighting something on the inside because their understanding of love is that you must be worthy of it. They give and withhold love based on what the other person does, how the other person responds. And so the idea of unconditional love, where God has decided to love you, lavish his love upon you, open the door of heaven to you, whether you respond to it or not, he will keep on loving you. Whether you repent or not, he will keep on loving you. But the only way to experience that love is to leave that old stuff behind. And here is the thing, it's about feeling unworthy. You see, deep down, every one of us knows that we are not worthy. You know that? Even as believers, one of the hardest things to get out of that, out of our hearts, is that old, I'm not worthy enough attitude, which belongs to the sinful way of thinking. Because love is not about how worthy you are. Love is found in the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It's about He is worthy. And so because people think, well, 
I, I don't believe that I'm worthy of this. They resisted. And sometimes they resisted openly and with hostility. And be, be, be open to those people who are the most vocal against the gospel because very often they are the ones who are closest to it uh, because they, 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 what they're resisting is that old death throes of the flesh in which they're about, from which they're about to break free and to know it's not about us being worthy, it is about God being worthy and loving us exactly as we are. And so this is the true healing, the true healing of the soul, entering into this great experience of the love of God. David Benner says, God doesn't want me to try to become more loving. He wants me to absorb his love so that it flows out from me. And so I return again to knowing myself a deeply a person deeply loved by God. I meditate on his love. Allow my focus to be on him and his love for me, not my love for him. And slowly things begin to change. My heart slowly begins to warm and soften. I begin to experience new levels of love for God. And slowly, almost imperceptibly, I begin to see others through God's eyes of love, I begin to experience God's love for others. Only love is capable of genuine transformation. Willpower is inadequate. Spiritual effort is not up to the task. If we're to become great lovers, we must return again and again to the great love of the great lover. Thomas Merton reminds us that the root of Christian love is not the will to love, but the faith to believe that one is deeply loved by God. That's where we must give attention. Returning to that great love, a love that was there for us before we experienced any rejection and that will be there for us after all other rejections take place. This is our true spiritual work. And when we are transformed by the love of God, his commandments are not irk irksome or burdensome. We delight in him as he delights in us and we love to please him. We love God. We love his ways. We love his commandments. We love his will. And we do it for him, knowing that his way relates to the way things actually are. Our inventions don't come close to reality, but the reality that flows from him and his love is impressed upon our lives, and we do it for him. Suppose that today, in the next few moments, Jesus appeared visibly and physically before us. Imagine that. The Bible indicates that he would have his nail-scarred hands, total uh, eternal reminders of his love. With his nail-scarred hands, he reaches out and touches you and embraces you in his arms of love. What would you withhold from him in that moment? If he simply said, do it for me. No matter how hard it might be, would we refuse? No. Even if it was counterintuitive, you're asking me 
to give up the very thing that's going to make me happy? He said, no, no, no. I'm asking you to give up what you think will make you happy to receive the only one who can make you happy and who can fulfill the longings of your soul. Would we refuse? No. I've got good news for you. He is here. We don't see him, then we don't think he's here. Oh, he's here. Do you, only, do you only believe what you see? Or do you believe his word? He says, I'll never leave, I'll never forsake you. The Lord Jesus Christ is here today. And he reaches out to you, to you and says, I love you. Will you receive my love? And will you do it for me?